Welcome to The Index, a podcast by the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. The series delves into the Global Organized Crime Index and takes a look at some of the biggest threats facing countries and regions around the world. I'm your host, Delewin. The topic of this episode is financial crime. Joining me for this discussion is Sangeeta Goswami. Sangeeta is Policy Advocacy Advisor at Human Security Collective, a non-profit foundation based in the Netherlands. Her work, including as co-chair of the Global NPO Coalition on the Financial Action Task Force, revolves around assessing and helping to mitigate the impact of counter-terrorism and countering the financing of terrorism rules and regulations on the operational environment of civil society. We also have Christina Amahauser. Christina is a program manager at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime, conducting research and analysis in the Asia-Pacific Observatory, including recent research on illicit financial flows and predicate offenses in the Mekong region. Prior to this, Christina worked with GITOC's Southern and Southeastern Europe Observatory, where she focused on illicit financial flows and money laundering and efforts to strengthen civil society responses to organized crime and corruption in the Balkans. Welcome to the Index. Christina, if you could set the scene first and sort of tell us what is a financial crime and what activities constitute financial crimes. Sure. So financial crimes can generally be defined as organized crime that results in a financial loss to the state, an entity or private individuals. So it's really about generating and laundering illicit funds. Activities that are included in the financial crime definition are usually frauds, tax evasion, embezzlement, misuse of funds, and money laundering. But one of the key challenges is that not every definition of financial crime actually includes the same number of activities. So for example, some definitions include money laundering. However, in the index specifically, Money laundering has not been included under the financial crimes category, but it's actually been included with the specific predicate offense. One example could be money derived from illegal logging in Cambodia, which will contribute to the flora crime market score in that country instead of the financial crime score. Another challenge with the definition of financial crime is that some definitions equate financial and economic crime, and the term is often used interchangeably. And that adds to the confusion uh, what it really is. And the definition becomes even more confusing when the concept of illicit financial flows is added, or IFFs, which acts as an umbrella term for a wide range of threats and activities within illicit international trade and finance. The concept of financial crime originated um, with the term white-collar crime. So crime committed in an office environment or the business community and is still often referred to as such. But quick technological changes and globalization have significantly impacted the concept of financial crime today, and it's not limited to an office environment anymore. Today, definitions often have in common that they refer to the role of deceit, concealment, or a violation of trust. But the long list of offenses that can be included under the financial crime concept, as well as the fact that many of them are interconnected and are reinforcing each other, as well as the fact that they're really very often closely interconnected to other types of crime, for example, cyber-dependent crime or cyber-enabled crime, human trafficking, makes defining it and measuring it in the index really challenging. 
That's really interesting and fascinating, but also lays out the challenges in just even sort of understanding what constitutes it because of there's not an agreed definition, right, or set of activities of what constitutes it. But in terms of the index, how are you defining financial crimes? So the index defines financial crime as a financial loss to the state, entity and or private individuals through one or more of the following activities. This includes financial fraud, tax evasion, which includes activities such as price misinvoicing and abusive tax avoidance, embezzlement and the misuse of funds. Great. Thank you. Now, um, while doing research for this podcast episode, I discovered that in 2018, there was a report which is on the true cost of financial crime, and it revealed that companies had suffered losses of $1.45 trillion. So, you know, we're not even talking about million, billion, we're, we're, we're talking about trillions, like, you know, the, the mul- multiples of zeros uh, to financial crime. I mean, that is a lot of money. And I want to ask this question to both of you, but perhaps first to Christina. Do you think there is actually a lack of understanding as to the damage that financial crimes can cause on society. We know it's there. We know that there's a lot of money, but I'm not sure all of us actually know the extent to which how big it is. It's it's true. Financial crimes are really massive and, and widespread globally. I think especially technological changes driven also by the COVID pandemic have really contributed to the expansion of financial crime. For example, frauds and scams really have spiked in recent years. Financial crimes are often also considered low-risk, low-level, high-reward and high-volume crimes, sometimes posing relatively low entry barriers, and this has also added to the expansion. In Southeast Asia, there is currently a serious concern about so-called cyber-scam operations. And it's reported that tens of thousands of people have been trafficked and are held hostage in compounds across the region which is actually a form of human trafficking. But then they are forced to exploit other people online through uh, romance scams and investment scams in oil, gold and crypto and so on. And so this has really exploded across the region. I don't think it is well understood uh, the harms that organized crime and financial crime have on the communities and the economies and societies across the Mekong and Southeast Asia. And I think the fact that there's a diverse number of offenses included in the financial crime definition also contributes to the fact that it takes place, of course, everywhere around the world and globally. And it's it's quite hard to grasp what actually the harms and the impact directly is. Originally, the financial crimes have been perceived as non-violent, connected to the idea that committed in an office environment, as I mentioned before. But I think research has shown that this has also changed. In some cases, financial crimes really have become violent with significant harms and serious economic impact experienced by countries around the world as well as their citizens. And this again also becomes really very clear when we look at these cyber scam operations in Southeast Asia at the moment, where thousands of people have been deceived of their savings and lost a lot. Maybe over to Sangeeta to add a little bit more. Sure. Yes, Sangeeta, love to hear your thoughts. 
Thanks. Thanks both. And just agreeing with everything Christina said there, actually, and also your question that there is a lack of understanding, actually, uh, on the damage that financial crime have on society. You know, financial crime is often seen as a victimless crime, but it is actually anything but a victimless crime. If I just give you some figures from an African Union commissioned uh, study from 2020, which was led by uh, the ex-president Tabo Mbeki, It was a high-level panel on illicit financial flows from Africa. The findings were that over the last 50 years, Africa is estimated to have lost in excess of $1 trillion in illicit financial flows. And this sum is roughly equivalent, the report said, to all of the official development assistance received by Africa during the same time frame. And currently, the report went on to say that the Africa is estimated to be losing more than $50 billion annually in illicit financial flows. So that's just one component of financial crime. And this apparently is a conservative estimate. And to get back to your point, I think, you know, these flows cost more than just financially. They tend to perpetuate poverty. They tend to perpetuate inequality, perpetuate conflict, among other ills. And of course, most importantly, they hamper sustainable development as well. Yeah, that's, you know, a really interesting, I think, perspective, like you said, in terms of because if it is a white collar crime, if it's a financial crime, you know, who suffers? But that example you gave of Africa was very vivid illustration of the harms it can cause. But also, Sangeeta, if you could perhaps talk a little bit also about how your work relates to financial crime, because, you know, uh, your organization, Human Security Collective, just from the name itself, it doesn't sound like it has, you know, much to do with financial flows, but it's very much linked to what you do with developing countries and emerging economies, right? So if you could talk a little bit about that. We came into this sort of a few years after 9-11 when we were seeing that civil society was having difficulty operating in terms of, you know, opening bank accounts or transferring monies to conflict zones or just in terms of their general, you know, operational activities. And we couldn't figure out why this was happening until we did a bit of digging. And then we figured that there was this body known as the Financial Action Task Force, you know, sitting in a basement in Paris somewhere. And, you know, they had these set of normative standards, which countries then needed to implement. And one of those standards happened to be on civil society organizations and, you know, how to regulate them and how to oversee them. And countries were going gung-ho and seeing it as low-hanging fruit and, you know, putting in place all these onerous and burdensome due diligence requirements on the sector, which was having a knock-on effect on how they would register or how they would access money or how they would operate. So, yeah, so as you can see, I mean, I think financial integrity is a goal that, you know, everybody shares. But sometimes the way that financial integrity norms and standards are sort of translated in countries and in national jurisdictions, you know, which is not often risk-based or not proportionate, you know, leads to ineffectiveness and leads to these unintended consequences. And so that was our sort of entry point into this whole sphere. So, you know, looking at the operational environment for civil society per se. That's really interesting. And I want to come back to you later on, you know, resilience of communities as well as the linkages with, you know, the terrorism financing later on. But I want to go back now to Christina. I mean, both Christina, both yourself and Sangeeta had spoken of the fact that there needs to be a greater understanding of, of financial crimes, right? But 
they also, and, you know, Sangeeta just now alluded to the fact that they also contribute to poverty, they undermine sustainability goals, but they also enable other illicit markets and activities, right? Things like money laundering and tax evasion. Can you talk about those links and why is it important and how important it is that we also understand that they're sort of interdependent and they support each other? Um, yeah, so I mean, organized crime is, is, is profit driven, of course, and is an extremely lucrative business. And criminals then want to use these illicit proceeds that they've generated. And this is really when money laundering comes in, as it evolves around the process to conceal or disguise the origins of illegally obtained proceeds so that they appear to have legitimate source and origin and can be freely used. And it has often been argued that in order to reduce organized crime, you need to take the money out of crime, follow the money to trace the flow of illegal profits, to support the identification of victims and offenders, and um, of course, enable the seizure of assets to deprive criminal networks really of their profits. And this uh, has become a core part of the response to organized crime, but there's still uh, lots of room for improvement. We need to better understand how uh, money is laundered, where it is laundered, and the impact it has on communities. Sankita has already talked about the impact it also has on, on poverty and the sustainable development goals. So the enablers of financial crime, also, for example, informality or offshore tax havens, special economic zones where transactions really cannot be monitored also facilitate other types of organized crime. So to say that financial crime is really very closely interlinked with money laundering, tax evasion and, and other illicit markets. You also talked about, you know, how financial crime sort of enable organized crime to thrive. Can you give, you know, some examples between, you know, the linkages between the two as well? Generally, the, the UNTA Convention, so the UN Convention Against Transnational Organized Crime, lists sort of four key criteria that define an organized criminal group. And one of them is to obtain directly or indirectly a financial or other material benefit. So this already shows the very close interlinkages to financial crime, as the motive behind financial crime is also inevitably financial. But not all forms of financial crimes are organized crime. So, for example, when we're talking about individual actors, organized crime gaining illicit proceeds. So, for example, in organized crime, gaining illicit proceeds is the result of another type of crime, for example, the profits of drug trafficking, while in financial crime, the misappropriation of money is a crime in itself. So financial crimes, as I think I've also quickly mentioned in the beginning, are very closely related to other types of organized crime. If we take the, the example of the cyber scams in the Mekong, there's the interlinkages with human trafficking become apparent. But there's another layer of complexity when cyber scams are, for example, conducted with cryptocurrencies. In the index, crypto is included in the cyber-dependent crimes, but there are also a specific form of scams. So there's a possible challenge of double counting in the index, and it shows the close relationship between cyber and financial crimes. But of course, many forms of financial crimes are generally cyber-enabled, so facilitated by the internet and thriving on the technological developments. 
Can I just ask Christina something actually? How do you solve this double counting issue? So how do you take it take it into account, you know, in the index? It's just a methodological question that I had. Yeah, so so in the index we all types of frauds and scams are counted under financial crimes, but specifically cryptocurrency scams are counted under cyber-enabled crimes. So this is a big challenge. Yeah, but the, the research of crypto is, is cyber-dependent because cryptocurrency simply wouldn't exist without internet uh, and technology. So that's why they fall under cyber-dependent crimes, but general financial crimes and frauds enabled by the internet fall under financial crimes category. But it's very tricky. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. But that's also super helpful. And, you know, thanks, Angita, for the question, because I was going to ask about cryptocurrencies as well. And you've asked, you know, on my behalf, so I don't have to do that now. But I still want to ask, Christina, um, about the rationale, right, behind including financial crime in the next index and and how will that affect the other scores? And 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 one of the things you did say just now was that, obviously, the link between the organized crime and financial crime and individual financial crimes need not necessarily be part of the index, right? So I'm also assuming like what happened with the Bernie Madoff, you know, Ponzi scheme in 2008, uh, or at least which came to light in 2008, that won't be some of the things that you'll be considering as part of the index, but something more, I guess, more institutional with links to organized crime, that would be the things that you would be considering. So, so generally, we've decided to include five new markets in the second iteration of the index. So in addition to financial crime, we um, have now also included illicit trading, counterfeit goods and excisable goods, cyber dependent crimes, as well as extortion and protection racketeering. And we felt that this was really needed to reflect the changing landscape of organized crime, especially in the post-pandemic environment. But it was also important to some degree level the playing field, as in some countries might not have scored um, highly in the original markets and may now see a rise in criminality due to these additions. It's important to note that countries may have a high indicator or a low score um, on financial crimes for very different reasons. So, for example, financial hubs, of course, attract financial crime because of the relative wealth there. And tax havens where oversight and record keeping are often weak may be initial destination countries. So countries with weak financial regulation may experience high degrees of financial crimes as criminal takes advantages of existing loopholes. And others, but other countries that, for example, have widespread informality that can facilitate tax evasion may also have a high financial crime score. Just also to say that the inclusion of the financial crime market now in the index has also impact on the resilience scores of countries, particularly in the anti-money laundering and economic regulatory capacity score. The scandal you refer to, I think, was an embezzlement scheme. And so as with other types of financial crime with embezzlement schemes, it's really important to see whether this is committed by an individual or done in an organized way with syndicates operating from within a company or an organization. And so if it's organized, it's included in the index. If it's an individual, then it's not. And maybe just to mention another um, embezzlement schemes, I've recently learned about the case of South Africa, where service providers charge heavily inflated prices and are awarded contracts through collusion with senior executives and managers. And actually these types of embezzlement schemes 
are part of the reason why the utility has been unable to provide consistent electricity, exacerbating rolling blackouts in the country. And it also, again, shows the harm that financial crimes and some of the schemes behind really have on economies and societies around the world. Thanks, Christina. Actually, Sagita, I want to bring you in because, you know, what Christina said with countries that are considered financial hubs, you know, tend to see more of this. And maybe I'm misunderstanding this, but when people talk about financial hubs, I see them as more developed and richer nations with, you know, financial infrastructure, right? Uh, And in an industry. So are both developing nations equally affected by financial crimes? Or is it more of a something that tends to happen in richer nations? You know, you gave us this, this, this quite an eye popping figure at the beginning with the losses in Africa. So it would be great to hear whether countries all around the world uh, are equally threatened by this. Yeah, thanks for that question. Uh, You know, it's an important question, I think. Developed and developing countries are affected, but they're not affected equally. If you just take something like illicit financial flows, I think the greater outflows in terms of these are often from developing nations. And, And the greater inflows of illicit financial flows are into developed nations. So, you know, if you look at the UK, for example, or the Netherlands. So, you know, illicit financial flows in that sense are a profit making business in developed countries. And, you know, these are, this is facilitated by the legal system and by enablers such as lawyers and accountants. So developed nations actually often play an active role in perpetrating financial crime. Uh, So yes, to answer your question, they are both affected, but they're affected differently. And, you know, you also talked about the fact that, you know, there's some sort of facilitation going on, right? So what's the relationship between financial crimes and, and corruption, for example? I'm no expert on this again, but, you know, in my book, I think corruption is a type of financial crime. I think it's a subset of financial crime. I don't know, Christina, whether you have different thoughts on this, but in, in, in my sort of limited understanding, I think financial crime is sort of the overarching field, so to speak, and corruption is, is a subset of it. Yeah, I would completely agree. I mean, in some definitions of financial or economic crime, corruption and bribery are actually included in the list of offenses. And that really shows the, the tight interconnectedness and um, how corruption is also an enabler of financial crime and illicit finance underpins and, and fuels corruption. So it's really almost a circular relationship. Thinking a little bit ahead towards the actors that are involved in financial crime and and corruption, this of course then also brings up the question of political will to fight financial crime. And in previous research, we've observed that financial crimes and IFFs benefit from the policies designed to create loopholes to preserve and grow the wealth of elites around the world and to move their assets free of taxation and oversight and so yeah so you know you talked about actors and the fact that systems are designed that requires the involvement of state actors right of of people in policy making roles people with the decision making power and the authority to design these systems right so are state actors involved in these types of crime and if so how and and i want to actually hear from from both of you based on your experiences do you want to go first christina sure i'll quickly start and hand over but i mean just to say i think all five actor types of the index are really included and involved in in financial crimes I mean, the private sector, which is the new actor type uh, category of the index, 
plays a key role in facilitating and, and enabling financial crimes. But yeah, as, as mentioned already, state-embedded actors can also uh, play and play an important role. And um, some of the, the scandals that we've heard, uh, there were close ties between the company and the political elite. And, um, and also in the research that we're currently conducting, we observed that criminal networks are really very closely connected to corrupt state-embedded actors who facilitate um, financial crime. Sagita? Thanks. I mean, I was just going to build on Christina's last point there when she said that, you know, policies are skewed uh, in favor of the very rich or the kleptocrats, etc., and enabled by legal systems and by these other enablers, enabling actors such as lawyers and accountants, etc. So that's one part of the problem. So that's state act- actors and policy making. But there's also sort of corruption, bribery and fraud in the public sector itself. And we've seen time and again in the work that we do in communities, etc., that that tends to damage the social contract greatly between the state and its people. And then then there's the question of politically exposed persons who hold positions of power that can potentially be abused, for example, to launder illicit funds or other predicate offenses such as uh, corruption and bribery. And then, of course, there's this whole other issue of terrorism financing. Uh, And as we know, there is no definition of terrorism per se in the multilateral system, So, you know, as many others, including special rapporteurs have said, it could be everything and nothing. So, you know, it's the it's on uh, the onus of the state to define it the way it does. But those definitions, of course, never encompass state sponsored terrorism itself. There are, I think, different layers to this problem, you know, which encompasses, you know, different types of financial crime, the issue of trust and the social contract and, you know, policies which are put in place to enable that political elite or that wealthy elite in in different parts of the world. And I want to actually follow up with you on the terrorism financing that you you mentioned. Can you explain what Hawala is and and, and its relationship to terrorist financing and money laundering? Hawala is, is a very popular sort of informal value transfer system that allows for the shifting of money from one person to another without the actual movement of money. And it is based on, you know, as, as you probably know, the performance and honor of a network of money brokers, so the hawaladars. And these hawaladars settle through trade and cash and net settlement over a long period of time. And this hawala system sort of operates in parallel to the formal financial and remittance system. And, you know, just as the formal financial system is vulnerable to money laundering or terrorism financing, so too, of course, is the hawala system. But I think what must be kept in mind is that it is a legal system in many parts of the world of money transfer. And most who use it, use it legitimately. You know, there are reasons also why people or communities or civil society sometimes don't use a state-supported banking system and use Hawala instead. You know, look at Myanmar currently, for instance. I think, you know, it is as vulnerable or as not vulnerable as as the formal financial system is. But I think what one can do to mitigate the risk is, you know, adequate and risk-based supervision and regulation, which should adequately mitigate the risk of hawala for money laundering and terrorism uh, financing, as it does for the formal financial sector. Thanks for that explanation. I know exactly what you mean, because I am from Myanmar and, you know, there's so many barriers to a formal financial system, and particularly with the latest political situation, there's so much limitations and in terms of access that it's 
not necessarily just for ease of convenience, right? Just the availability and access as well. But it's also really interesting that both of you have said as well, I guess maybe the lack of understanding and the way the systems are designed, the focus or the the penalty, you know, tends to be on informal systems that the more vulnerable people tend to rely on instead of the million dollar bank accounts that can be hid away in havens. So that's, yeah, no, that's, that's fascinating. And Sagita, one of the things you've also said, you know, with financial crimes, in addition to worsening poverty and, you know, threatening the sustainable development goals was also this breakdown in trust, right, between the citizens and the government. What other repercussions are there, particularly for developing countries and economies from financial crime? And I guess in particular as well, if they're linked to illegal activities. I think this question is sort of linked to the question of scale, I think. And the scale and scope of financial crime, as we've been saying, is huge by all estimates. I think, you know, institutions like the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, UNCTAD, are sort of doing a lot of work on quantifying this by developing sort of robust statistical tools to measure, for example, illicit financial flows. But yeah, the repercussions, as you say, are massive, given the scale of the issue. And it sort of has an impact on whichever sustainable goal of the 17 you take into consideration, whether that's poverty, whether that's food security, health, education, water, sanitation, climate action, inequality, governance, institutions, I mean, you name it. So, you know, overall on on human security itself, on community security, on the security that people themselves feel in themselves. So it is it is a massive issue. How do we combat this? You know, are there any examples or case studies of successful efforts to clamp down on financial crimes? Christina, can I perhaps start with you first? So I think financial crimes would really be an important new market in the index. But when it comes to tackling organized crime more generally, and we've spoken about the close interconnectedness between financial crimes and organized crime and corruption, then sort of the focus on, on money that is sort of inevitable with the financial crime discussion is probably too limited. Financial flows, we see in research that financial flows are really moving through three key systems, so the financial system, but also trade and informality. And currently, there are big holes that we're not able to monitor in our responses. And this includes offshore tax havens, special economic zones, and the informal economy. So uh, one place where it could start would be the promotion of financial inclusion, which are a, a core development principle. And there's a broad understanding around this without actually challenging the the status quo. And there is much more technology available these days to really bring people into the financial system. But would really also be interesting to uh, hear more from Sangeeta on this and and her thoughts, especially on on the role of financial inclusion as a a response to financial crime. I agree with you that, you know, there are holes in the system. So you have these international standards and conventions to which all countries are signatories to when it comes to combating financial crime. So you have the UN Convention Against Corruption, for example, the UNCAC, which is the first legally binding anti-corruption standard. You have the Financial Action Task Force standards against money laundering, proliferation financing and terrorism financing. But as you were saying, Christina, you know, the FATF 
is only looking at, you know, this thin sliver in the middle because, you know, you have a broad swathe of people who are not even in the formal financial sector at all. You know, they're outside of it. There are those big holes in the system. And and often often these financial integrity norms and standards are sort of impinging on financial inclusion norms and standards. So they're sort of, you know, policy incoherences there as some of the research we've done points to. But, you know, combating financial crime is all we want, but I think the nub of it really lies in the implementation. How do you deal with some of these policy incoherences? How effective is the implementation of the normative standards by you know, a multiplicity of stakeholders that are involved in the process. So you have different departments of government, you have central banks, you have financial intelligence units, banks, and all these actors sometimes have differing mandates and have to deal with multiple regulatory frameworks. To take an example, banks are made the gatekeepers in fighting financial crime, money laundering, terrorism, financing, sanctions, evasion. But there is this sort of downstreaming of risk to the banks, which we see a lot, which is not always effective. And then this new mantra, the new holy grail seems to be private-public partnerships in terms of fighting financial crime. But again, there are dilemmas there, you know, not least ethical ones involving privacy. And then, you know, people are talking about private-public partnerships, you know, and layering on these other things, but nothing is ever taken away as a recent University of Amsterdam research showed. So you layer on more and more regulations, you know, FATF regulations, EU regulations, then you have private-public partnerships, but, you know, nothing is ever taken away. And the efficacy of any of this is never sort of measured. It's still a work in progress. And, you know, we haven't seen very much in terms of effectiveness or a more outcomes-based approach or a more results-oriented approach in any of the ways that these normative standards are actually implemented in countries. Yeah, I think work in progress is the key word here. I'm also assuming, right, that financial crimes affect the ability of watchdogs like the civil society and the media and and perhaps also law enforcement agencies, you know, to operate. And in turn, that would also affect how resilient communities are to organized crime, right? I mean, Sangeeta, this is what you do, what your organization do. Ironically, it's actually the combating of financial crime that often works to reduce the resilience of civil society organizations and watchdogs to actually do the work that you know they're meant to be doing. So if I can just explain this by delineating the link between financial crime and terrorism. So often it is nonprofit organizations who play a, quite a vital role in addressing violent extremism leading to terrorism and in exposing, for example, human trafficking or drugs trafficking, which is the source of illegal income of many of these criminal groups and networks that intersect or interact with these terrorist networks. And, you know, the production and trade routes of drug trafficking are often through countries with corrupt or failing or fragile governments. And human trafficking, as we know, happens through the exploitation of destitute communities and families. And so money is the power that these traffickers hold over these communities, which are then easy enough prey to any violent extremist ideologies in circulation at this intersection of criminality and and terrorism. So it's important that we have an enabling environment for civil society work. 
our work often looks at addressing, you know, the underlying or root causes of, you know, why communities get attracted to this violent extremist messaging, you know, including helping combat various forms of trafficking, etc. But as I was saying, the way these financial integrity standards are currently being implemented has often proved counterproductive in terms of governments actually actively abusing these standards to crack down on civil society in some cases, because, you know, as you know, civil society often speaks truth to power in many of these contexts. And, you know, as Christina was saying, there's also this impact on financial inclusion, etc., as a result of sort of misimplementation of these standards. But I think, you know, bodies like the FATF are actually recognizing this. They've instituted an unintended consequences work stream looking at financial exclusion, looking at nonprofit suppression, etc. But, you know, must be remembered that civil society complements the role of the formal watchdogs, like the FATFs of the world, you know, in the CFT space. This enabling environment for communities and for civil society is important so that we can sort of complement the role of the formal watchdogs and work to sort of effectively combat financial crime. Having discussed all of this in detail, are you confident or concerned that we can effectively sort of tackle financial crimes? Both of you are smiling, <laughs> but not answering. Yeah. You no, know, I mean, I can go. I mean, I think effectiveness is really a major concern. I mean, we've had, for example, the FATF, the Financial Action Task Force, for 35 years now. We still have grave instances like sort of the revelations with the Panama Papers or the Pandora Papers, you know, in the last few years. I think the problem lies in the fact that the frameworks that are in place to tackle such crimes often lead to just tick box approaches from jurisdictions, etc. And these approaches, as I was saying, are neither risk based nor are they outcome based. And, you know, this just leads to ineffectiveness. So I think we need to focus on a more sort of risk-based and outcome-oriented approach if we want to get somewhere with this whole fighting financial crime business. Thanks, Sangeeta. Christina? Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with Sangeeta. I think sometimes it feels that there are actually quite some ideas or there's almost no shortage of possible responses, but there's no no real will to implement and to also get it done. And we see that also across the index. And there's so many countries around the world that are not enforcing really the laws that they have in place. And and that's reflected in, in the resilience indicators. So sometimes it's not about creating completely new responses. But as Sangeeta has also said, it's really about using and enforcing and checking the effectiveness of some of the measures that are already in place. And and maybe one quick note also on technological innovation. I think, especially with financial crimes, we always say that with more technological innovation, there are also more opportunities for financial crimes. And this is, of course, then made even more serious because we're lagging behind in raising awareness around the risks around some of these technological innovations. But on the other side, we also, with these changes, learn how to protect ourselves from specific risks. So it can also create opportunities to fight financial crime. It can create opportunities for more oversight and making it harder to, I don't know, evade taxes or misinvoice goods. No, that's a very balanced, I think, view and, and also not just focusing on what we are failing to do, but to spot the openings and the opportunities. It's good that we're ending on a slightly positive note that there are opportunities to deal with it, even though if it is still a work in progress and there's still a lot to be done, things never move in the same pace as the criminal actors do 
right, in terms of legislation or response. It's always a reactive thing. But no, this has been fascinating learning from both of you and all the best with the next index. Thank you very much for coming on to the show. Thank you very much, Thin, for having us. Thank you very much, Thin. Thank you to Sangeeta and Christina for this fascinating discussion on financial crime. Remember that in the podcast notes, you'll find links to country profiles discussed in this episode. In addition to that, you'll find a link to the Global Organized Crime Index, which lists 193 countries around the world, scores their levels of criminality and resilience. It's a totally free resource and available to everyone. Just head over to ocindex.net. That's it for this episode of The Index from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Dilewin. Thanks for listening.